The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Earth that was could no longer sustain our numbers. We were so many. We found a new solar system, dozens of planets and hundreds of moons. Each one terraformed, a process taking decades to support human life, to be new Earths. The central planets formed the Alliance. Ruled by an interplanetary parliament, the Alliance was a beacon of civilization. The savage outer planets were not so enlightened and refused Alliance control. The war was devastating. But the Alliance's victory over the independence ensured a safer universe. And now, everyone can enjoy the comfort and enlightenment of true civilization. Why were the independents even fighting us? Why wouldn't they look to be more civilized? I hear they're cannibals. That's only Reavers. Reavers aren't real. Full well they are. I heard they attack settlers from space and kill them and wear their skins and rape them for hours and hours. Bye, It's true that there are dangers on the outer planets. So with so many social and medical advancements we can bring to the independents, why would they fight so hard against us? We meddle. River? People don't like to be meddled with. We tell them what to do, what to think. Don't run, don't walk. We're in their homes and in their heads and we haven't the right. We're meddlesome. River. We're not telling people what to think. We're just trying to show them how. London. It is Thursday, September 15, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Well, we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be so welcome to the show today, where we'll be talking about a number of different topics. I'll be talking later on in the show about an interesting evening that both Bob and I attended last mm-hmm. Thursday, uh, evening after our show, and that was with um, noted personalities Lars Hedegaard, Salim Mansour, and Dick Field, all who have been guests on our show. Fascinating presentation they gave last week. We'll be talking about that. And uh, how about you, Bob? What are you going to be talking about today? Well, during the last quarter of the show today, I'm going to ask a strange question. I was wondering how many people might have survived the digital switch for TV. yes. uh, That was, you know, they were talking about so much up until the end of the month, and all of a sudden it went really quiet, and no one said a thing. And, you know, I'm one of those people that doesn't have (laughs) uh, cable and all the rest of that stuff. So, um I'm one of them affected, and of course, uh, for the first quarter, we'll talk about that in the last quarter, and for the first quarter, I want to talk a little bit about our health care system and some of the things we've been hearing in this election. And if you want to add to our conversation today, give us a call at 519-661-3600, or you can email us uh, later on if you have some thoughts about what we're talking about today at feedback at justrightmedia.org. So, Bob, health care. Let's beat a dead horse. (laughs) You know, Robert... I've been listening to just scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal. You can listen to the news daily, read the papers. 
Um, this is like the Mideast conflict. It just goes on it, and it, on. It, it is. That's a good good comparison. You know, lately, the lack of dignity in our in our emergency rooms and and in our hospitals and the waiting lists are continuing continuously growing as the bills pile up, and no one seems to even have a, a perspective on the issue. We're in the midst of an election. And Tim Hudak is talking about putting ankle bracelets on prisoners and all the rest of it. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. The stories I've heard out of the hallways, the billions wasted on e-health, the poor woman who went into the hospital with a bladder infection, and then they find out later she was, you know, found dead by blunt trauma to the head. You know, so after being left in a hallway on a bed, what kind of system have we got here? I'll tell you what kind of system we have. Actually, I'll leave that to you. But, you know, with that bladder infection story, there, in the National Post, even today, um, a rehash of a story that uh, happened in 2008, I believe, a man named, by the name of Brian Sinclair, who was in a wheelchair, went to the emergency room and um, found dead after waiting to see a doctor for 34 hours in an emergency room in a wheelchair. All he needed was a catheter change and antibiotics to treat a simple, routine bladder infection, but he was, according to the free press, ignored to death. Now, if this had happened at some sort of private hospital in the States or prior to our uh, state-run medical system, people would be up in arms saying, oh, we got to take over this. Private health care obviously doesn't work. Well, now it's happening in our public system. So what's the response we get? Well, we never get a response that's suitable. You know, talk about meddling. <laughs> meddling. <laughs> uh, government is meddling with every aspect of what we call so-called health care. And it's a big point I want to make today is that our health care system was never meant to be a system to look after the sick. It wasn't designed for that. We're going to hear it from the horse's mouth a little later on. But, but what we end up with is a system of shortages and rationing. And every government policy and every debate in this election is about which party can ration better, except for Freedom Party, of course. But all the other parties are talking about rationing. And, you know, the, the Ontario government has actually set up a toll-free snitch line. Did you know that? Quote, for people to report cases of illegal private health care and says it has triggered 35 investigations in barely a month. The McGinty government is opposed to doctors working for private profit, and so health care minister Deb Matthews has vowed to keep sick care out of the province by supporting a snitch line. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. The things that our governments do to prevent us from getting health care, and that's what they call preventative medicine. What it really means is, is preventing you from getting the care you need. And it, honest, I'm not joking about this. You know, it, listen to this. In response to, to this amazingly irrational and rationing disgrace, you know, I have to particularly thank the following letter writer to the National Post, Alistair Gordon of Toronto, who wrote on August 19th, and I quote, In Ontario, it is perfectly legal to sell cartons of cigarettes to any wheezing addict who wanders into a convenience store. It is legal to sell booze to any trembling, jaundiced alcoholic who darkens the doorstep of a government-run liquor store. But if a private clinic tries to sell a colonoscopy to a health-conscious citizen whose goal is to avoid death by colon cancer, Dalton McGinty's healthcare enforcers will stop it. Yep. Isn't that amazing? And then people wonder why they have wait times and all that. By the I way, when you talk about what are the other political parties doing about it, and you mentioned Freedom Party, do you know that recently there was a candidate's debate, because of course we're involved in mm -hmm. a, an election rate here right now, um, there was a candidate's debate here at the university campus uh, put on by the Canadian Cancer Society. 
And do you know that the Freedom Party wasn't even invited? Only two candidates show up. Here, I'll read from the, mm-hmm. uh, the University Gazette, the local paper here. It says, There was difficulty in getting the candidates out to the debate, and it was obvious. While candidates from the Progressive, Conservative, Liberal, New Democrat, and Green parties were all invited, only Deborah Matthews and the Liberal Party candidate and Kevin Labonte the Green Party candidate, were actually in attendance. Well, sorry, you want to hear about alternatives to our socialist medical care system, the the Canadian Cancer Society? You invite the Freedom Party candidate next time, and then you'll get an option. You know, Cheryl Miller, I heard her on the radio the other day saying, quote, I want my money to go to frontline workers, end quote, and I almost died. I'm going, oh, that's amazing. She wants her money to go there. Then the rest of the time she was using the term our money. For a minute there, I thought she actually meant she was going to be responsible for her own health care. But that wasn't what she was talking about. She started talking about how patients need rights. Oh, my God. You see all these bills of rights we get in the newspapers? If they're telling you your health care rights in a newspaper, you can be sure you have none because they're too scared to send it to you in the mail with your name on it. <laughs> you know, it's not a right. It's this collective, here's what we'd like to do for you, but it isn't going to happen. Remember, it's a conservative government that gave us both a ban on private health care options and introduced the provincial income tax in the 60s to pay for all of this mess. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of the politicians of all the parties support the legal limit on the number of doctors. I can't believe it. They're limiting the number of doctors. And that's directly forcing the doctor shortage. And and all of them support this. They support this utterly nonsensical notion that the cure to what ails our failing health care system is not to get sick in the first place. That's their That's their cure, all of them. Even the leader of the Green Party and the local libertarian candidate I heard, he was running in Fanshawe, made the same point. They said, yeah, we should be promoting preventative health care, as though that were some kind of magical solution to a problem created by treating, by treating sickness as a prevent- preventable occurrence or event. And that's libertarian? Yeah, I don't he, think so. Yeah, he even said that. I think it's perfectly consistent. Um, and Hudak's in there, too. Hudak wants to hold, quote, hold hospital CEOs accountable for performance. Can you imagine that, end quote? Which means even more rationing of health care and even shorter doctor visits so that the CEOs can meet their performance goals. That's how that's going to happen. Come on. And they're always measured in dollar savings, wait times, and outcomes, but never in terms of demonstrable improvements in health or cures for the patient. You never see that. So... The issue is, what do we need? Well, first of all, we need more doctors on the front lines. We don't need accountability of CEOs and all this. And that's not going to happen through a socialized medicine system that's not even not even created for the purpose of this. And this is what people can't get their heads around. You know, you can't get accountability out of a system that is literally made as to be an institutionalized system of unaccountability with no one being responsible for any, anything, not even one's own health. And that's what they're trying to prevent, is responsibility. We have a single-payer system. That means other for, you know, sources of, of money and wealth cannot put money into a health care system. It has to be the government. And, of course, we've got a monopoly. And then we have this preventative medicine nonsense, pouring tax dollars into keeping healthy people healthy. Well... How do you measure a result like that? You walk into the doctor's office healthy, you walk out healthy. How do you know the doctor had anything to do with it? There's no change. Where, 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 how do you measure a service like mm-hmm. that? What is the purpose of this? You know, not to be funny, what Ontarians need is sick care, not health care. And I know that in some ways that sounds a little moronic to have to even make such a distinction, but it's become critical because the left has made it so. They don't know the difference anymore. And 
Tommy Douglas, you know, the individual most held to be responsible for socialized health care, predicted years ago that a socialized government-run sick care system was utterly unsupportable. So his, his solution was to tell everybody not to get sick, and that's still the rule today in the health care system. May as well tell the tide not to rise. That's pretty true, yeah. And so this is a point we have to get across, and I know you're hearing it from me, and maybe that doesn't convince you. So maybe you want to hear it from the horse's mouth because uh, basically that's what they're all talking about. Now, the following voice you're about to hear is that of Tommy Douglas, the so-called father of medicine. And this is taken, believe it or not, from a Freedom Party election commercial that you can view online, but I won't be playing the Freedom Party ad or Freedom Party's pitch itself. Yeah, I, I know, shame on me. But it's called From the Horse's Mouth. You can see it for yourself at www.freedomparty.on.ca. In addition, and in addition to the, the voice of Tommy Douglas, you will also hear the voices of very familiar current politicians on the Ontario scene. So if you don't believe me that the reason our health care system is the way it is, that it's not about sick care, it's about keeping healthy people healthy, not making sick people healthy. It was never about that. Tommy Douglas will tell you so in his own words right now. I am concerned, as many people are, about Medicare, not with its fundamental principles, but with the problems which we knew would arise. The access challenge that we're all, uh, that we're all experiencing. Access is not being provided in a sufficient way or in a timely way. Those of us who talked about Medicare back in the 1940s and 50s and 60s kept reminding the public that there were two phases for Medicare. The first was to remove the financial barrier between those who provide health services and those who need them. We pointed out repeatedly that that phase was the easiest of the problems we would confront. That phase number two would be the much more difficult one. That was to alter our delivery system so as to reduce costs and so as to place the emphasis on preventive medicine. We must now move increasingly toward group practice. We have funded 200 new family health teams since 2003. They're assuming responsibility to uh, uh, promote better health and to help you uh, prevent illness uh, in the first place. But the need for group practice so as to make possible the practice of preventive medicine. The preventative focus is one of the things that is at the heart of our government's agenda. We've tried to remove uh, junk food from our vending machines in our elementary schools. We have made uh, physical activity mandatory during every learning day in our elementary schools. Now we want to um, eliminate the sale of foods that contain trans fats. We said that we were going to fund through our public health care system, Medicare, three new vaccinations. Preventive medicine. Only in that way are we going to be able to keep the costs from becoming so excessive that uh, the public will decide that Medicare is not in the best interests of the people of this country. Why is free speech threatened? 
all over the world, the Western world, acid has not been threatened for the past 65 years, that is after the fall of fascism. Let me give you a straight answer. Free speech is under threat because we are witnessing the collapse of an entire political ideology. That is the ideology of multiculturalism, the crazy idea that nation states do not need a set of values and a national culture to keep them together, but that they're better off if every country is a hodgepodge of competing, competing cultures, conflicting value systems, antithetical legal systems, and in the final analysis that it is okay to have parallel societies within the borders of each nation state. Let me also make it absolutely clear that as I see it, the problem is not one of ethnicity. I don't care one bit where in the world people were born, where their parents or grandparents were born, what ethnicity they belong to. If they want to live among us as loyal and productive and law-abiding citizens, if they love their new country, if they are willing to teach their children to honor their new country, to cherish its language, cultural institutions, history, if they believe in personal freedom, freedom of speech and conscience, our democratic values, our civil liberties and our rule of law, they should be welcome. And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And that was a clip from Lars Hedegaard, who appeared last week here in London, Ontario. At the Lamplighter. At the Lamplighter, yes. And um, I was in attendance as, as well as Bob, and we were filming and enjoying an amazing speech by Mr. Hedegaard, followed up by um, Salim Mansour, who was promoting his new book, A Delectable Lie, A Liberal Repudiation of Multiculturalism, and a guest to this show, Dick Field. And we'll be hearing from Dick um, somewhat at length a little later on, and also from Salim. But right now I'd like to talk about what Mr. Hedegaard had to say. Now, for those people who aren't familiar with Lars Hedegaard, he is the president of the International Free Press Society. And that is situated, or headquartered, if you will, in Denmark, where Mr. Hedegaard is a citizen, of course. Now, Mr. Hedegaard, back in May, May 3rd, was actually convicted of racism and um, uttering hate speech, so-called, by the Eastern Superior Court in Copenhagen. And he was convicted under the infamous Article 266B of their penal code. And this is exactly what Mr. Hedegaard had to say, which got him into hot water in Denmark. And I'm quoting from the Copenhagen Post here. Now, the quote is from Mr. Gar Mr. Hedegaard himself. <clears throat> he said in December of 2009, quote, girls in Muslim families are raped by their uncles, their cousins, or their fathers. And when a Muslim man rapes a woman, it is in his right to do so. These were among the comments Mr. Hedegaard made during a 35-minute interview at a Christmas party with the author of a blog named snaphannon.dk. Probably pronouncing mm -hmm. that incorrectly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was all over the newspapers for quite a while. I remember we discussed it once before briefly. Right. And then this blogger posted the comments on his blog, and of course then they became uh, Mr. Hedegaard's problem with the courts. Now, Mr. Hedegaard went out of his way to express that he wasn't talking about all Muslim men or all Muslim families. He was talking in the same sense that 
If you say Americans great make great movies, it doesn't mean every American makes a great movie. I understand, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? And, and the very fact that he had to express that caveat speaks to the lunacy, the stupidity of people who would pick up on comments like that and say that that tarnishes every single Muslim with this brush. Of course not. Well, that's the whole calling card of the whole racist yeah. ideology in the first place, right? Of course. If you smear Stupidity. everybody with, well, <laughs> maybe, yeah. But I think it's more used as a weapon to prevent discussion of issues. And that's why we have censorship of certain words and censorship of certain ideas, so that the, that the important issues that underlie those words will not become aired in a public forum. That's the attempt of the authorities, really. It is. And, and you know, there's an extreme danger when we restrict freedom of speech, as, as Mr. Hedegaard's speech has been restricted. Now, he was actually acquitted originally of the uh, so-called crime, but then found guilty again on appeal. And he is, again, appealing that as well to the Supreme Court of Denmark. Um, he was fined 1000 uh, the equivalent of $1,000 uh, Canadian. I think it was 5000 kroner. But the problem with restricting free speech when it comes to issues as sensitive as this is that what happens to a person who wants to express an idea and he is squelched. What recourse does he have? Now, I'm not just talking about Mr. Hedegaard here. I'm talking about anybody. Anybody who has a problem, whether it's a legitimate problem or not, in society, and they're forced by their government to keep it to themselves, to shut up, in other words, what's their recourse? The recourse is violence. Hmm. If you can't peacefully talk about an issue, people are going to go... And, and refer to violence. And that's the source of the statement, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Exactly. You know, people do not understand that. And they say, oh, well, names do hurt me. Well, no. No, they can offend you. Yeah, just wait till you feel a stick and a stone, and then compare the <laughs> difference, and then come back and tell me that, will you please? Thank you. Exactly. You know? So now, Mr. Hedegaard, of course, being the president of the International Free Press Society, now we have a chapter here in Canada, the International Free, Presi- Free, uh, Free Press Society Canada. And uh, we've mentioned this society here before. They're always looking for members, so look them up online and please uh, support them because free speech is perhaps the single most important vanguard we have against violence in society. Because without free speech, the only recourse (coughs) is violence. So now I want want to continue on with Mr. Hedegaard's talk about um, his court case. He actually wrote a, a letter... And, and published it on the International Free Press Society's homepage, where he says, The real victim of, the, of this despicable case are freedom of speech, which we've just talked about. But not only that, he says, he goes on and says, The other victims are the tens of thousands of girls and women, Muslim as well as non-Muslim, whose plight may no longer be mentioned in my country for fear of legal prosecution and public denigration. We can't permit, he goes on, We cannot permit this outcome to stand. I have therefore decided to appeal my conviction to the Supreme Court, and if that is denied, to the European Court of Human Rights. Funny, Ian Hersey Ali cited the very same concern in the United States. Mm -hmm. The silence about what's happening to a lot of women in the States in domestic violence situation, because they're not allowed to talk about it. Can't use those words, can't say this, can't say that. Apparently, we can talk about domestic violence if the perpetrator is a, a white male, perhaps. But if he's not a white male, part of an identifiable <laughs> yeah. group because of his um, race or ethnicity or religion, we can't talk about that. So therefore, that 
continues. That kind of domestic abuse, that kind of domestic violence will continue as long as free speech is inhibited, both not only in Denmark, but here under in, in Canada under Section 13, which is a very similar mm. um, code which penalizes people. Now, we've gone through this before. Mark Stein, Ezra Levant, uh, uh, even Ann Coulter was threatened with it when she visited here. So, yes, free speech is the only way to solve our problems without resorting to violence. So the people who are advocating that people like Mr. Hedegaard be convicted of racism, of all things, yeah. when you're thinking that being a Muslim, Islam is not a race. I know, they don't even... How they stupid! Don't even, they don't even understand the categories of distinctions. It's like, it's frightening. Uh-huh. It's like being convicted by, you know animals or something like that people who don't understand the language don't understand concepts don't understand anything and and the people who do are victim to them you know like it's really weird it is weird <laughs> it's beyond weird it's it's surreal it's uh, and it i think it uh, portends a fall of society you well, know this kinds of craziness danger, you know because these people in power these are our judges or in Denmark, the, the Danes judges, you know. But let me conclude by saying, the, um, quoting from Mr. Hedegaard again, who uh, wrote about this particular case. And he says, quote, In the era of globalization, freedom must either advance or it must give way to the forces of darkness. And to those who cannot believe that a civilization as mighty as the Western and European civilization can simply collapse and humanity regress to some state of semi-barbarity, who can't imagine that we can lose our technical accomplishment, our knowledge, our science, our humanism, that we can go back to hunger, illness, and early death. Just look at what happened to the Roman Empire. And the first harbinger of imminent collapse will be the curtailment of free speech. Well, there it is, folks. The harbinger of imminent collapse is happening, not only in Denmark, but in this country as well. So I think that this goes as an example of what we should be aware of out there, and I hope that people will support the International Free Press Society Canada chapter and go online, look them up, and uh, join. And the next time when they have, hold an event with such prominent people as uh, Lars Hedegaard, Salim Mansour, and Dick Field, you can all come out and enjoy an evening of fascinating and provocative discussion on the issue of free speech. So we're at the bottom of the hour. We're going to go for a break, and at this break, we're going to hear from another presenter at that at that evening from last week, Dick Field, who is a World War II veteran, who is also a blogger in his advanced years. He has much to say on his blog, blancosblog.com. So look at that, and, and give a listen to this. He's talking about what his impressions of Canada have been since coming back from the Second World War, where he fought, I believe it was in Italy. So uh, just give a listen. We'll be back right after this. Now, what I'd like you to do for a minute is think back to the troop ship landing in Halifax, the Halifax Dock. The troops are coming off that gangplank and down, and, and people are watching and, and laughing and crying and meeting their wives and sweethearts. Very emotional. And I leaned down, I leaned down, I was one. And I rubbed the ground. And I said, thank God I'm back. This is wonderful, this is a great country. And we were proud. We didn't worry about anything then. We had a set of values that we fought for. We didn't go overseas to fight for our health care program. 
We didn't go overseas to fight for our welfare. We used to call it the bogey in those days. <laughs> do you remember? <laughs> so anyway, we didn't do that. But two days later, I'm marching up to Toronto with a thousand soldiers just back. The bands are playing the flags festoon all of the buildings. They were the financial center of Canada. All the restaurants, all the lampposts, Union Jacks, and the red end sign of Canada in equal numbers. And we, they are, or were, our battle flags. And we were proud of that. Not because they were red, the head of Union Jack, but because they represented what we fought for. And the one thing we didn't do was worry about our government. Because our government were to be trusted, they upheld the same laws we did, and from, from, uh, from what they did during the war, which was fantastic, they mobilized the whole of the country and got it behind the war effort. Fantastic. We, we trusted our leaders. We didn't think about politics. We were just working hard. And then all of a sudden, what I call the great train of freedom of Canada, roaring into a great future, was sabotaged and came to a resounding screeching halt. And who were the saboteurs? Well, the saboteurs were Prime Minister Pearson, to begin with, in 1963, and in 1967, Prime Minister Trudeau. Now, what did these people do? They did the, they did the thing that they shouldn't have done. They talked, or at least Pearson started it. He wanted the bi bicultural and bilingual uh, continent of Canada, Canada, and culture. What did he ever raise that for? That was a no-no in Canada. You didn't talk about culture, and of course that morphed into multicultural. Now we got lobby groups. We got tribes fighting tribes. Should have been raised. And then they came up with the thing that said, "Oh, we're uh, all cultures are equal." They passed the Multicultural Act of Canada, and that's what it says. All cultures coming to Canada are exactly the same value. Well, they're not. And they got these tribunals going. And what do these tribunals do? Well, they crush every value we ever had. You can't speak freely. You have no rules of evidence. Hearsay, people talking about what somebody said three, three people ago, is evidence in those courts. They're a travesty. And when I saw them pass that in every province of Canada and the National Human Rights Tribunal, I couldn't believe my, I couldn't believe it. I was devastated and I wrote and I phoned and I did everything to try and stop them. But no way, because they had to suppress us. They had to keep us quiet. Don't say anything. Don't insult one of these new group of people. Because you can't hurt their feelings. If you hurt one, you've hurt the whole group. You know, how, how nonsensical can you get? So what happened was, they started to resell the whole thing. Hey, they said, you know, what's a Canadian? And they started saying, oh, well, there is no such thing as a Canadian culture. Well, what's our culture? And somebody mentioned it. Well, we're not American. 
We haven't gotten Putin guys from Texas. No, no, we're not American, can't be that. But what we are is a beautiful, kind, and caring group of people. Not warriors. We're peacekeepers. Not warriors. For God's sake, we lost 100,000 people fighting two wars. How do we cope with this? The first thing is we've got to teach our children. I think that was said already. We've got to get it into their guts. We've got to get it into their souls. And they have to teach their children's children. It's going to take time. Because you don't know a bad law coming down the pike if you don't know what your principles are. So you've got to teach them about human, about the human rights life. You've got to teach them about free speech. Express your views. You've got to teach them that everybody's equal before and under the law. And justice is blind. And you've got to tell them all those things. You've got to know them by heart. And I'm just going to tell one more story before I close, and that is this. When I was 10 years old, and some of you, maybe approximate back there, in the schoolyard, you would hear any boy, because of boys that usually fight, you would hear in the schoolyard some young boy, maybe 10, like I was, and they'd say, shut up, I'm not going to shut up. I am a free person and I live in a free country. And that's what they'd say. Where did that come from? It didn't come from books. It came from how they were raised. And that's what we have to do. We have to impart our values, which you know as well as I do, into their very heart and soul. And you're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. You can give us a call at 519-661-3600 if you'd like to join in on our little discussion here. We're, now we're talking about freedom of speech. And that was an excerpt from last week's presentation by the International Free Press Society of uh, Lars Hedegaard, Dick Field, and Salim Mansour. Now that was Dick Field, a World War II veteran, lamenting the progress of our country, if you can call it progress. From a time when he came off the troop ships in Halifax, Halifax, where he was elated to be back home, and where he describes that we didn't worry about our government then, we didn't talk about culture, there was no animosity towards people of different races and ethnicities, at least not on an official level as there is today. And he witnessed over the last 60 years the destruction of the values that Canadians had come to take for granted. And that he went that, overseas to fight for. And he went to fight for. That, that, I loved when that, he said, that, we didn't go over there to fight for right. our health care system. <laughs> no, and, and, and... Actually, in a way, he did, because the health care system back then was private. And the irony is the country he fought against had the health care system we have today. And it's true. <laughs> in Germany, under and that, Nazism... And, and it's perfectly consistent with that, too. Under Hitler, under Nazism, yeah. Hitler, being a fascist was all for things like universal daycare, kindergarten, uh, socialized medicine. And into uh, the green philosophy. That's what the Autobahn was all about, was, oh, was, taking, right? was taking the German people out into the wilderness. It was, it was a whole different way of thinking, mm. right? So, uh, yeah, it was con perfectly consistent. Well, the impassioned speech that Dick gave mm -hmm. ended up by saying that we have to teach our children, and I absolutely agree with this. I was looking in the National Post today, and there's an article about 
um, a planner that was given to uh, grade twos in Toronto. And in the planner, it talks about things such as uh, genital mutilation of females, um, sex workers, uh, Pal- Palestinian Solidarity Day of the Did United you say Nations. Grade two, grade two, seven year olds, six year olds. This is what's going in our schools today. Rather than talking about things that Dick Field had to take for granted, we all took for granted, I guess, growing up. And these were concepts of a liberal democracy, something that Salim Mansour mentioned the last time he was here last week, actually. Two weeks ago. Uh, Was that two weeks ago? Yes. (laughs) Sorry. Um, And those concepts have to be reinstated, inculcated, drilled into our children for them to understand them on on a level that, as Dick says, it's into their guts, into their souls. It becomes second nature. The right to life, free speech, equality before and under the law, the fact that justice should be blind. Um, other concepts like, where did our representative democracy come from? What's the roots of our history? Why are elections free and fair with universal suffrage? Was it always that way? Of course not. People fought for these things. Why law enforcement officers are servants of the people and not thugs with tasers. Why you have the right to defend yourself. Why there's a right to liberty why, and why there's a right to property. The right to due and rights process. rights are not given to you by other people or other authorities. That's the other thing. That is a concept. That's a concept. Sorry, that's a concept that um, I, I was reading about just recently in the Federalist Papers. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Federalist Papers, but it's mm-hmm. an American set of documents. Um, I forget the actual number, 84 articles, I think, written to promote the Constitution of the United States. And there was a debate going on about whether or not they should include a Bill of Rights. And the people who were in favor of a Bill of Rights said, well, it, it, it tells the government that we have these rights. And others in my opinion, quite rightly, we're saying that, no, don't put in a Bill of Rights, because as soon as you do that, then people will assume that, oh, that's all the rights we have, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, that's what Dick meant when he said we didn't learn it out of a book, because a book is like, okay, here's your rules. If there's only 10 things in the book and you forgot the 11th one or somebody didn't write it, then it doesn't exist in some people's minds. And that's not how those concepts came into being. They came into being out of necessity because they're part of reality. Exactly. And and that's what has to be uh, put across. Because, I mean, there are probably parents out there teaching their children values as well that might be not the values we're talking about. And that's where you have the conflict that that we have with various cultures, right? Right. And that's what distinguishes a culture from one, one from the other is the differences in the core values that they possess. If it weren't for those differences, the cultures would not have a point of difference. According to Dick, we've lost those core values that made us distinctly Canadian. I actually remember growing up back in the 60s and 70s, and there was a debate going on about how do we define ourselves as Canadian. And I still remember to this day people saying, well, we're not Americans. Mm -hmm. Sorry, what's that, Ed? We have the caller on the line? Okay. Put him on. Hello. Go ahead, caller. Um, I was just talking uh, briefly with your call screen here about uh, multiculturalism going back to the days of, you know, uh, Pearson and Trudeau and and connecting it to uh, the the liberal parties uh, of today, probably the last 10 to 15 years. And the reason why they ingrain this idea of 
multiculturalism and, and respecting uh, the cultures that come over here through immigration is because they want their votes. Um, our kids, probably for the last 10 to 15, maybe going even as far back as the 60s and 70s, have been taught that, oh, you can't speak ill uh, of people, you know, coming to Canada. You know, everybody's equal when really they're not um, because they want their votes. I, I especially emphasize this towards the Liberal Party of the last maybe 20 years. They've noticed an increase of immigrants, especially immigrants from the Middle East, and they want to buy their votes by suppressing everybody else's rights to free speech and to think the way they want to think. I certainly think there's a, an element of that, and I thank you for your call. Um, there's definitely an element of vote buying here. Uh, because it works both ways, though. It does know? work both ways. As a matter of fact, the Conservative government got in, and a lot of analysts suggested that that's because a lot of immigrants came while the Conservatives were in power for that minority uh, governments that they've had. And immigrants, uh, by and large, of course, they have their own minds and can think their own way, but by and large, they support the government that let them into the country. And uh, because uh, Mr. Harper was in the, the was the prime minister for the last five years or so, um, a lot of people said that he won the won the uh, recent election because of the immigrant vote. Oddly enough, and, and then here provincially we have Mr. Hudak playing what appears to be the anti-immigrant card to try and get votes. <laughs> <laughs> so, who's going to win? You know, like it's. Uh, how do you, how do you uh, resolve that? Is what is the better motivator for voters? Exactly, it all depends yeah. on the numbers, doesn't it? It's, I think both both things for for motivate, motivating votes are disgusting. You personally. know, what all comes down to, I think, what um, Dick Field was saying is that education is the key, and we Absolutely. have to teach our children not only uh, the, the things about why we have rights and why demarcating them is is a danger, but also our history. Who out there knows about the Magna Carta? It's, that's basically where it started. Uh, to tell you the truth, there was a little ch unknown charter called uh, the Six Statutes back... Um, no, not the Six Statutes. What was it called? The Charter of Liberties. That's right. The Charter of Liberties back in 1100. Wow. Under King Henry I. And it was the forerunner of the Magna Carta. <clears throat> it sought to bind the king to the certain laws regarding the treatment of church and officials and nobles. Now, the Magna Carta was, of course, 1215, 796 years ago. Our history of freedom goes back that far, people. Let's not lose it. Remember, we had the Reformation. We had... Um, well, a whole series of... of we had the Renaissance, the Reformation, yeah. the Age of Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution. Now what are we supposed to do? Go back to Sharia? Go back to the Dark Ages? We have to get back to our core values of freedom, of liberal democracy, and teach it to our children. And that's exactly what Salim Mansur talks about in this next clip, where he takes his daughter on a trip to the United States to visit some of the monuments to freedom. We'll be back right after this. A couple of weeks ago... My wife and I took a little girl on a road trip down south and we visited Philadelphia and New York and other places. And I wanted to take my daughter and show her the Statue of Liberty and we cruised around the island and we saw it so that when she comes home, as she did and, and began a school this week, you know, she will have stories to tell her friends and she goes to grade two now and, and, and teacher will be asking what they did over the summer. And so that's, that was one of the purposes that I had in mind. And we had a great time taking her to those places. And then we were in line in Philadelphia 
to see the statue and to see the Liberty Bell. I, I had seen the Liberty Bell for the first time in America's bicentennial year, that was in 1776, a long time ago. Been back a couple of times, but this time I had my little girl in my arms, or sorry, holding my hand, and we were walking and reading in the museum where the bell is kept in, in Philadelphia. Little background history. And while reading some of the stuff there, I came across this little story, which I want to share with you. It was about the bell. And as you all know, this was the bell that heralded the Independence Day, July 4, 76. It was the bell that rang on that morning in America. But this bell soon after fell silent. It developed a crack and the crack grew wider and the bell never again rang. It stands there or it sits there, it's held up there now as the bell that, that rang on July 4th, 1776, but it has gone dumb. And as I was reading that story with my little girl, it struck me. It made me again, once again, aware of what I knew, but that story was so poignant and so immediate that the bell of freedom went dumb. Freedom is extremely fragile, and for it to go dumb, it doesn't take much time. It has to be asserted and reasserted and fought for, because the forces against the freedom movement with that bell represented is huge, and our history, in that sense, can be signified by the symbol of that bell. some marijuana with a friend of mine not too long ago. Watch Survivor. I was wondering why they wouldn't kick off the skinny guy with the red shirt who kept screwing up. Then I realized we were watching Gilligan's Island. <laughs> Don't watch Mickey Mouse High. He'll scare the crap out of you. Mickey's kind of freaky. No shirt, tight shorts. I'm a little uncomfortable around Mickey Mouse. I think he's just Michael Jackson in a costume. They got way too much in common. Mickey and Mikey, it's got to be the same guy. They got the same voice, same physique, same shorts. Both love kids. Both wear a glove. Both have an amusement park in their backyard. Both black with a white face. <laughs> well... I don't know what you're watching on TV these days, Robert. I actually saw a Gilligan's Island episode a few months back. My, my grandson loves it. Well, so did I, actually, yeah. But, uh, so how, how, did you survive the analog switch? Uh, I'm afraid it didn't affect me, because as I've said on this show before, yeah. I don't watch television. <laughs> well, you know, Robert, I actually had my television set on, and it was on Channel 10 at, on August 31st at the midnight hour, mm -hmm. the witching hour, and my TV went blank. And I wasn't sure whether it would or not until that moment, because I thought my TVs were relatively new. They were only a three years old, maybe four. And, you know, they, when you went to that website they told you to check out, uh, I couldn't find any information telling me if my brand of TVs were, uh, um, you know... Compatible, compatible with the digital with format. Compatible with the new yeah. digital format or not. So, 
facts. But what I thought was funny was that suddenly all the talk and warning of the coming switch from analog TV reception to digital just went totally silent and kind of like my TVs in my home. <laughs> I have three sets, okay? And uh, now, I, now I don't have any kind of thing you call, could call broadcast TV, not even Channel 10. And I have to assume that... You know, either the ads that the government played announcing this were very effective and thousands, if not millions, rushed out to get their new digital converters, you know, or to sign up for direct paid services, or nobody cared. And the silence I'm hearing is the non-sound of a non-audience. I've talked to a number of people, and they said, well, that's the end of Channel 10 for me. They're not going out to, to buy a device that costs almost as much as their TV to get, get that one channel, right? So, I, I don't know. I don't know how many people are in that situation. So my sets were relatively new. I had two Toshibas and one Samsung. Jeez, that's a bad word these days, isn't it, Samsung? <laughs> um, but neither had the foresight to put digital tuners in their sets, and I actually thought I wouldn't have a problem. So there it was. You know, it happened. And, um, you know, the National Post ran a three-page feature on the coming switch to digital analog uh, just a little while before it actually happened. And they said they focused on some individual Canadian TV viewers who, quote, are among hundreds of thousands of Canadians, millions by some estimates, who have received local or regional TV channels for free over the air for decades. On August 31st, this group will find their screens snowy as those signals switch to digital. And now, you know, I'm thinking, cutting off these people from their over-the-air TV reception was predicted by some cable and TV subscription providers to be a, a you know, a a source of business, right? You know, oh, we're going to get some business. But apparently that's not happening. And one of the reports says, quote, a windfall is far from guaranteed, though, with some considerable countervailing forces to contend with, the most daunting of which is convincing this group of people to pay for television, company executives say. I don't see the point, says a Renfrew, Renfrew Ontario resident by phone last week. I don't want to become a couch potato sitting in front of a TV watching hours and hours of it. Plus, I have no intention of giving them $35, $45, $55 a month. When you've watched it free forever, it really kind of bugs me to pay for it. End quote, right? And the article goes on to point out how south of the border, the U.S. Congress passed a multi-billion dollar subsidy to buy digital conversion tuners for millions of affected Americans. You wonder why that, that economy is going down? They're buying stuff like that. And uh, the other thing, of course, is that keeps those folks from switching to other providers. So the providers aren't getting the business that they were hoping the government's competing with them. Isn't that funny? But in Canada, it's not the case. You have to pay your own way here. And they say a digital converter runs for about fifty to a hundred dollars per television set. You know, so, TV uh, to I'm, me is just so outrageously it, expensive. I, I gave it up years ago. Yeah, for what you get out of all that supposed choice, mm -hmm. most of which isn't your choice. It's something usually something called a CRTC forces on the cable network. They can't give you the packaging you want. No, you They're, have to buy the first channels that they give you. The first package, the basic stuff, is yeah. all the crap you don't even want. And then when you want the good stuff, like the HBOs and the Showtimes and all that, boy, you got to pay through the nose. And I said, forget it. This was back at the time of Rogers' uh, mm. negative billing, and I, that rubbed me the wrong way, too. But I have to assume that even like Channel 10 locally, they, they, have, they have got to have lost a market somewhere. And I'm just not hearing about it. Maybe we'll hear about it in a month or two. But it just seems strange to me that uh, this change went, and it, there's got to be a lot more people like me, and it sounds like there is. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the interesting thing, of course, is everybody had to switch, and then... <laughs> Then I read this article, 
National Post. CBC gets extension on joining the 21st century, says the headline. And, of course, they complained to the CRTC. And you know what they got their extension based on what complaint? Hmm. It's not economically feasible to switch to digital, right? So they give them a one-year extension, and I'm thinking, okay, so a year from now it's going to be economically feasible? <laughs> I don't think so. Right? I don't hmm. see how that market would change. I, 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 you know, the CBC didn't say they couldn't do it. It was more like they wouldn't do it. Well, the CBC are not known for their financial acumen. No, that's true. And that's, that's <laughs> part of the other part of the joke, you know. But um, in any case, it, it, it is a, it's an interesting situation. I just found this morning this article by Jonathan Goldstein in uh, the National Post as well under... Um, well, he just calls it my week, and this was his Friday at the end of the week. And he says, I watch an ad on TV reminding Canada that at the end of the month, the nation will be switching to digital TV. And that reminds me of the small black and white TV in my hall closet that I can't bring myself to throw out. It hardly seems worth getting a digital converter for since it would cost more than the TV itself. There's something very warm and comforting about the light it throws, though. <laughs> since there's nothing but entertainment news on any on anyway which celebrity is wearing what and having sex with whom, I turn off the flat-screen TV, pull out the black and white for what may well be the last time. The reception is terrible, so I turn down the sound and bask in the warm glow while listening to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reminded yeah, of... Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. go ahead. It feels as old-fashioned as listening to Tales by a Campfire. As I listen, I watch the screen, and in the chaos of dancing photons... I visualize whatever I want. <laughs> I just thought Brilliant. that was wonderful. And with that... No, I was just going to say oh, that yeah. I'm reminded of the SCTV uh, uh, yeah. opening oh, where, where people are throwing yeah. all the TVs outside of their apartments and smashing them on the ground, and I think, boy, that's appropriate. Well, I hope they're not going <laughs> to switch car, cars and radio to digital and everybody have to switch to car aerials. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny? Yeah, hilarious. Not for now this week. <laughs> and we hope you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then... <laughs> You know what to do. See you then. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. It kills me that that's still on the air. Girls gone wild. I don't get it. I mean, I get it, but I don't get it. <laughs> girls gone wild. First of all, where were those girls when I was going to school? These girls have no idea how these tapes are gonna come back to haunt them, though, you know? When they're married and they have kids and they're teenagers, oh man, those kids are gonna be able to get away with murder. Imagine trying to set down the rules with these kids. It's a school night, you be home by 11. Mom, is that not you licking yours at Mardi Gras? Huh? <laughs> Don't wait up. <laughs>